This is The Final Word, cricket podcast, a podcast about cricket with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, uh, two people who talk about cricket on a podcast. That's what this is about. We've got a bumper show today as ever. This is the Wednesday, the weekly show, the midweek episode where we look at what's going on in the world of cricket. Dan Christian for Australia. He's got to go to India. He's got to go. He's back in an Australian squad for the first time in a long time. The Netherlands beat Ireland in a series. Why not? As they do, they just beat full member test nations for fun. England women's contracts have come out. We'll be looking at the Hayho Flint trophy. And uh, in just a minute, we'll be having a Decent chat with our friend Vidushan Ahantaraja, the senior sports features writer at The Independent, uh, about the Ollie Robinson story, the racist tweets that were discovered, the suspension that's been issued and the fairly predictable blowback from certain segments of the community to that. I've particularly enjoyed how they've been describing them as historical tweets, you know, as though they've been dug up out of a a trench by archaeologists, (laughs) dating all the way back to 2012 in the dim (laughs) mists of the past. Historical tweets. But before we get into that, uh, as we like to do off the top, uh, Win News has been cancelling various uh, newsrooms around Australia, but we will always have Win News on the final <laughs> word. News about Winifred May Collins. Uh, what's the latest from your tiny daughter? Yeah, what's Winnie been up to? Well, her, her favourite new thing to do is to grab any wet clothing she can. Mm-hmm. So whether it's clothes on the washing line, she will get them. So if a pair of pants is hanging on the washing mm-hmm. line, she will get them and put them over her head and pull them as close as she can to her face. And the same applies when, you know, if you get wet, it was raining on Friday, as you would have saw, of course, with the test match being washed mm-hmm. out. We got caught in the rain and all Winnie wanted to do mm-hmm. was suck on my T-shirt and suck on the <laughs> rain. Which It's a little bit weird, but I don't want to dissuade her from doing it, though, because it it's oh. an incredibly cute thing that she um, wants to pull in nice and tight. So... That's probably... And the other thing is we get these cute photos from nursery with what she's doing, you know, through the course mm-hmm. of the day. It's around the corner. She's like 250 metres from me right mm-hmm. now, yet um, it'll be a number of hours before I see her again, which is tough sometimes, I have to say. But, uh, yeah, she she loves the wet area where they give her, like, water and shaving foam and she just throws mm-hmm. herself all over it each morning. It's her favourite <laughs> thing to do. So um, she's going to be messy. She's still And she's very, yeah, still not walking. Uh, yeah. The only person in her nursery group not to walk. So all the photos are all these kids running around and then Winnie sitting on her bum, you know, <laughs> playing, you know, doing what she's doing. But she's, uh, yeah, got lots of words and lots of fun. I was just getting a real Peaches vibe from that. Sucking on my T-shirt like you wanted to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> what, what better than a mouthful of wet shirt? Well, I've got some good news for you, Adam. It's, uh, it's time for another episode of The Milk Round. I like to drink the milk all day long. That's why I'm writing this drinking milk song Milk is good for me and for you And you know you want to drink some too Unless you are a lactose intolerant Then you can't have any tomatoerant I love milk, it's good for you And you know you want to drink it too Yes, today we have the the madcap geniuses at Oak back on the on the milk round train I've picked up a carton of the apple crumble flavored milk now I mean as a long time flavored milk drinker I, I haven't tasted this yet what do you think like what would you be anticipating and do you think it would work 
I mean, it's going to be sweet, isn't it? I mean, I'm, what's your first impression? Why don't, give it a smell. Give it a waft. I'm getting a, a lot of cinnamon in the smell. Um, so that's, yeah, that's that evoking sense. the crust of the crumble, which is, you know, it's an important part. You can't have crumble with no crumble. How do you turn sort of like apple juice into milk? This is the challenge. How do you retain that flavour? How have they gone? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I was expecting it might be a sort of that really fake kind of green apple flavour that's really tacky and off-putting in lollies and stuff. You know, there are those particularly American lollies where they have green apple flavour and they have cherry flavour and they're just the two most disgusting, totally unlike the actual fruit sort of flavour. But that's a bit more subtle on the apple front. I'm going back in. I think it works. There's a sort of brown sugar and cinnamon aftertaste you get a bit of the apple zing up front and then the cake part at the back it's a it's 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 like two people in a horse suit you know um but but they've been doing this for a while and they're working well together i think that's a success (laughs) apple crumble they've done it again man on the moon and now this what next technology (laughs) wonderful i've been doing some um some some of my own home brewing through the week Mm -hmm. on the on the smoothie front as you know, oh, I, I, I'm quite drawn to a banana and avocado smoothie, which I've been doing for years, but I was lacking some ice this week, so I threw in a bunch of frozen berries, and it yep. came out a delightful colour of purple, and it reminded me of the mm-hmm. drink we used to get. This is going to sound yep. indulgent. Fuck, how do, I, how do I frame this without sounding like a complete prat? I'll give it a go. Back when I worked for the PM, the, the RAAF plane that would fly us around, which was an incredible privilege to be on quite a bit, they'd serviced this purple drink in the morning called the energizer which we mm-hmm. would gulp down and i wonder whether it's a combination of pretty much yeah this mm. that banana avocado a few mm. raspberries and away you go but yeah yes, just the- a sprinkling of speed yes that's just, right. <laughs> just just to make sure that the pm staff are really good to go at all times nice and sharp really sharp <laughs> really sharp really really just, sharp just sharp just as sharp can be articles in the paper so far read this like on page 77 it's going to be an important story today i'm sure it'll be on the tv news you've got to read it pm <laughs> you've, you've i've got a feeling i've got a feeling <laughs> from stabbing it with the highlighter so hard <laughs> you got to listen to this now this is one of my favorite songs you got to listen to this one (laughs) uh yes good good to start the show on a high well all right shall we shall we do what we're going to do shall we go into our interview from here let's do it let's change lanes just a little bit and have a conversation with Badushan Aharajan It's a final word, and we have with us today someone who I'm not sure if he's the most frequent guest of the podcast, but you'd have to be on the podium, have to be in the top three. Vadushan Ahantaraja, uh, welcome back. You've had a very busy weekend, both at Lords. You were all over the television doing uh, the Sky Cricket uh, journalist panel, yourself, Athers, and NASA talking before play on Saturday, which went ever so well. So you were all over social media, and then you couldn't come on Sunday because you got contact traced out of the out of the press box. I don't, you make it sound like I flew too close to the sun. Um, <laughs> 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 it did feel a little bit like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So I got contact traced on Sunday morning. Actually, I got the mm. alert. So it meant not only was I out of action for the last day, but it takes me out of the reckoning for. For Edgbaston as well, which is fine because I'll still cover it from home and I've got used to that over the last year or so. But you two, you know, Adam and Jeff, you'll know the Edgbaston experience. And when I say Mm. experience, I obviously only mean the food is one of a kind. And (laughs) I've been saving myself for it, kind of deliberately, you know, intermittently Mm. fasting for the last month when I knew we were going to be there. So this is, yeah, this is quite... 
quite depressing on a few fronts, yeah. <laughs> I think if, there, if there's any consolation, Vish, they probably would have had a buggered up routine this year given they would, they'd, they'll have COVID security things in place and it might be, you know, lunch boxes or something rather than the full buffet. And so you, you wouldn't have actually had the full edge Edgepaston experience. Um, so maybe you're not missing out on that that much and, and maybe it's also a lesson to you like you shouldn't have been licking NASA Hussein's face on live television <laughs> but we told you not to do it you did it anyway and now you're out yeah but you know when a former England captain starts kissing your neck there's only one thing to do isn't there <laughs> there's only one thing to do um yeah you're, you're probably right it wouldn't be the full edge Weston experience but even edge Weston at 50 percent food mm. capacity is worth it i'd say but yeah. you know I'm, I'm, i've been i've been quite lucky over the last year you know i've been tested constantly and lived my life since we've opened up you know pretty smoothly work has been all right so i can't really complain to be honest as far as your, your day job, I mean, it was a busy week, of course, these days, the, the chief features sports writer for The Independent, starting the week with, of course, first test match back at Lords, Ollie Robinson, and then working our way through. Perhaps we'll go to the end first, though, and, and deal with the result itself. So England not going after the runs. Jeff and I have already dealt with this on the on the sort of uh, the daily program we were making through the week. But from your perspective, how did you see that final day in terms of the decision England made to basically never really have a dart at a fairly chaseable target had they gone well in their pursuit of it? I, I suppose I went through all the emotions, really. When when Williamson declared after lunch, I thought, right, this is this is great. Because do you remember the 2015 New Zealand test where, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I suppose led by McCullum, they, they decided to, to go all out right up until that final catch where Trent Bolt tries to ramp someone over the, um, you know, over third man and Moeen takes that brilliant catch. And the the great thing about that test was, I, th- I think, I'm pretty sure it finished on a Monday, didn't it? So the Monday at Lords, you always have this atmosphere where it's not anyone who's been able to pre-book tickets, pay 75, 90 quid for a ticket. You've got to queue up. And so I suppose once you've shown that willing to queue up and you've got in, it's a bit, the atmosphere is a little bit different. It's a little bit like, I'm sure I've used this before, but it's a little bit like when Andy Murray first won Wimbledon, won at Wimbledon, but he won it in the Olympics, whereby it wasn't a traditional Wimbledon crowd, it was an Olympic mm. crowd who were just happy to be there and, and really throwing themselves into the event. And because it was a first Lord's Test back with, well, just first Lord's Test back, and, and there were fans there as well, and that anticipation you could feel through your TV. And then, you know, you, you take a step back and you look how... You know how rare, uh, how sorry, how raw that England team were. Four players on pairs as well, without Stokes and Butler, who have a pretty good track record of, of chasing New Zealand at Lords. And, and I could understand it. It was st- it was still disappointing though. And I think I wondered if the fact that there wasn't much on this in the World Test Championship sense that you know go at it. I, I feel like the nourishing powers of a win in that regard or in that situation would be so much greater than defeat and then at the same time it is an antiquated format and because of that a lot of the same emotions carry through from 10 20 years ago than they do from the I suppose the start of the cycle of the World Test Championship and it is a numbers game as as much as we'd like to rally against that and so yeah I mean I mean I I was disappointed I understood it and I was also disappointed and I'd feel more disappointed if I paid for the privilege of being there but I I suppose I can't really lament them too much because I would have probably been also the one writing 
well, they've lost, this will be debilitating for a young side, blah, blah, blah. So maybe I'm part of the problem. You just can't have teams sending Dom Sibley out to open the batting. Like, it's just it's just not on. <laughs> you, just, you just can't do it. Um, and you know, unless, unless you need to bat for two days to save a match, that was pretty much an admission of defeat right from the start uh, or an admission that they weren't going to bother going for it. So, yeah, I think my position's hardened on this from when we recorded the Daily Show. Where, you know, I'm, I'm understanding of the idea that you try to give yourself a bit of latitude, but I think having a young, inexperienced team is not an excuse. They're test players. They're supposed to be good enough to play test cricket, and you should at least see if it's possible to win before deciding that it's not. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with parts of that. I'd also say that you know, New Zealand bowled damn well and and also that there's there's an element of this which was always going to be a warm-up and I, I think it's, it's just endemic of the way England approached Test cricket anyway that India and Australia are, are always their primary focus and it's it's not helpful to anyone and I think we saw over the weekend why it wasn't helpful to, I suppose, just even the fans who, who wanted them to play positively you know I had, I had a look through the run rates and it, was, it wasn't exactly a uh, you know it, it wasn't an easy scoring pitch but they had, I mean I thought they had plenty of time and I think just from a couple of chats I had with some of the players who, who were part of it since then I think in the dressing room there was a sense that when Root went out there and Root and Sibley started scoring runs that they thought it was on and it it was potentially going to be on. So if Root had kept batting, maybe there would have been that focus there. But then at the same time, if you look at when they started scoring runs, it was when Mitchell Santner was brought on, polling with a bloody finger, and Kane Williamson brought himself on. And I think as soon as, you know, as soon as New Zealand went back to how they were bowling when England were actually, mm. how, you know, were actually considered to be reasonably in a chance, or with a chance to chasing it, then I think they would have shut up shop again. So I, I think it's quite convenient for those England players to say, oh, you know, we were we were thinking of going out when we are up in the rate when a bloke literally had blood on his hands when he was bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, when Lady Macbeth had the ball, we were thinking yeah. of going for it. <laughs> 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 on, to, uh, on to sort of weightier topics. So I joked off the top, Vish, you've been kind of on Media Street this week with Sky, but also yesterday with a, a number of interviews around the world on Ollie Robinson's suspension. Uh, we've been deferring this conversation through the Daily Show, saying we'd have it on the weekly program, thus why we're doing it today, I'm doing it with you. I mean, initially, the timing though, wasn't it? I mean, the Robinson tweets coming out, first day of his test career, at the same time, at the end of the test match, Sky win a BAFTA for their work on Black Lives Matter and the presentation last year. I mean, the way that the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Culture and Sport weighed in yesterday in a way that I suppose was entirely predictable when you think about it, but not you're not conditioned to seeing the Prime Minister necessarily talking about uh, something that should be usually handled in a fairly internal way by the ECB. I mean, your first impression of the, the swirling storm that, that, that has been Ollie Robinson in the last few days... Um, I don't really know where to begin with this, to be honest. Um, but you, you know, you mentioned um, Oliver Dowden and Boris Johnson. There, it's the most publicity English cricket has got since probably the Stokes Hale saga, which is a problem in itself, but also um, I suppose the least important of the important problems. What do I think? I, I suppose it's predictable in one way because we have seen this 
the uh, this kind of pouring through people's social media, a lot in other sports. We've seen bits of it in cricket, to be fair. We saw it at the start of the year with Matt Parkinson's tweets about Coley coming up. Mm. And it's important to say as well that they're on very similar lines to uh, the Jofra Arja tweets that were doing the rounds in 2018 and 2019, because basically... Twitter users were looking through their accounts to see if there was anything they could batter them with. Parkinson's was accused of tweeting about Virat Kohli, which, I mean, I've checked. It's not a crime. You are, you are still allowed to do that. I'd also say, it's, you know, he, for a young lad, it's, it's a good grift because tweeting about Kohli does good numbers, so good on him. It was on it from the start. And then, and then you know, the Joffre stuff, people were genuinely looking for, for dirt on him, and what they found was a kid who just loved watching cricket. And this was obviously the other side of that spectrum where there were these tweets which were abhorrent and, you know, it starts with England making a really contrived show of unity because they felt uncomfortable taking the knee for the couple of weeks that they did it last year and then ended up having to row back dramatically when those tweets had to be addressed at the end of that same day on Wednesday, day one. Mm. And obviously he comes back out. I appreciate the fact that there was no, you know, that pulling him out of the game wouldn't necessarily have been helpful to him. And I thought what was really heartening was Joe Root, who has talked about this a lot over the last year, not least because of what we've seen over the last year, and who definitely doesn't feel comfortable talking about it because, you know, you can tell from his body language that he finds it quite awkward, but nevertheless does talk about it. And the question was put to him, whether England should do better vetting on social media for their players they call up. And his response was, that well, that's not the issue here. The issue is that they were tweeted in the first place. That is mm. on us. That is on us as a sport, as a culture that we allow to thrive and at the same time fester, I think, at those levels. And I think we're seeing it with, you know, there's reports of, of another player who was young at the time, younger than Robertson at the time anyway, tweeting things that he shouldn't have been tweeting. And there's, there's, a, there's a broader picture here than pressing delete, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, the um, destroying the evidence of something is not actually a resolution. Yeah, and the... You know, I, 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 said, this, I said this on Sky, and I said this on my Prance Down Media Street yesterday, <laughs> but... Yeah, sure, that, you know, and that might be an agent's job to, like, cover up his athlete's track. We've seen a lot of that in sport throughout history but the and and i totally understand uh mm. the considerations of his age which i i you know i i want to believe and i implicitly hope 100 percent that he has changed and i hope that's what we find out from this investigation actually that he has changed completely otherwise it's a bit for nothing to my mind mm. and then at the same time there's a lot of sympathy and there's a lot of people angrily fighting his corner who you know don't know him at all mm. and all i would say to those people is those views you tweet when you're 18 17 16 15 are done with ignorance but i would say as someone who has been on the other side of those comments as a 16 17 18 19 year old even now but certainly then they are socially debilitating and they really push you out of places that you want to be and considering what we've known about cricket and what's been revealed to us about cricket over the last year specifically I would say if you're going to fight Robinson's corner please at least have a consideration 
for those people you don't know, those people who don't end up playing test cricket, who don't end up being quite good at test cricket because they might have felt that perhaps this isn't the sport for me. And maybe that time at 17-18 is more important than some other times in, in your life in terms of the the influence that that kind of speech can have. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, Robinson, he didn't know about this during the day while he was playing when when the story was first coming out. He was reading a statement within half an hour of getting off the field, so obviously he didn't write the statement himself. You know, it was prepared for him to walk into a press conference and do it. Mm-hmm. The statement was pretty good in that it wasn't it, it wasn't a sort of evasive you know if you were offended it was it did seem a more legitimate apology um what he actually thinks of it i don't know but the, the one thing that wasn't right with it and and this is something that comes up time and again is the depiction of racism as something that you are rather than something that you do right like so he comes out and says this is not me this is not who i am i'm not a racist i'm not a sexist and this is what always is the problem with approaching discrimination uh, from the people who perform it is that they treat it as a matter of identity. You know, I don't identify myself as a person who has these ideas. And nobody is a racist, you know, aside from maybe a few YouTubers who sort of get up in the morning and think today's a great day to do a racism. You know, that's who I am. That's what I do. But it's about it's about your actions. You can be as, as tolerant as, as you like, but you will still do racist things. You will still say racist things and think racist things. It will happen, but it's a matter of how aware of it you are and how much you can try to control that or become more aware of it and, and head off those sort of impulses before they're able to translate into actions. But like fundamentally, racism only exists in the doing. It doesn't actually matter what you think it matters what you do it matters when you act on it and words are actions you know saying things is is an action but all of this preoccupation with you can't call me a racist because i am not a racist it's not about that it's did you do something racist yes you did that's what matters not who you are or how you see yourself yeah yeah like this might seem a bit trivial but even the three of us here we're not cricketers but when we play cricket we're cricketers you know Mm. yeah I, i mean i just think this following on from Jeff's point I suppose to an extent but we've seen these conversations in the game over the last 12 months and I found it interesting when you pointed out there that part of the t-shirt campaign and the moment of unity was partly a function of not wanting to take the knee I didn't realize that was the that those two things were linked it's disappointing if it is given the commentary from Ebony and Michael Holding about England's not taking the knee later in the season in, in 2020 but just generally whenever these conversations come up I mean, the Rafiq uh, tribunal case that's coming up uh, in the middle of June, you can already almost tell how people will run to either corner, how balkanised a debate will be. We, we saw Michael Atherton, or we read Michael Atherton writing about this uh, in the Times this morning, uh, not specifically about that, but about the idea that, I mean, it's such a polarised world that it's as though uh, some members of the community are like, well, OK, well, we have to have this Robinson guys back because otherwise it'll be woke, cancel culture, virtual sig- virtue signalling and, and all the rest, and thus we must line up this way in the culture war. And I'm sure that's what the Prime Minister was up to yesterday, no question. And then even Michael Henderson yesterday, the piece that was uh, written as a criticism of the Wisdom Almanac this year, I mean, of course he's going to write that piece. 
I mean, and you can kind of, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like people fall, yeah, yeah. they play their role. It's performative to the extent to which everybody knows the role they play in this culture war. And an incident like the Robinson affair, Farago uh, rears its head and, and people just run to those corners. And the willingness to listen and show some nuance and some balance, I mean, it, it, it's desperately frustrating. Yeah, and, and the other thing I will say about, about Robinson and... <laughs> I know these people are well-intentioned and I understand where it comes from. But someone said to me the other day that you don't change those views and they, they pushed back on me a little bit when I said, no, I, like, I, I genuinely think you do. I, I genuinely think you can do that because, and I appreciate the fact that the flip side of that is a lot of people talking about his age when, you know, it's so difficult to find mm. a racist and sexist over the age of 18. It just can't be done. Mm. <laughs> um, but the one thing I will say is, you know, I, I believe in that statement he put out on, on Wednesday night. I categorically want the investigation to find that he is not racist. And I can say this from an entirely <laughs> selfish point of view, that my life is fundamentally e- easier knowing that there is one less racist in the world. It's just, it's just a matter of fact, Yeah. A woman's life will be fundamentally a lot easier if she knew there was one one fewer sexist. And, and similarly with anyone of the LGBTQ community knowing that there was someone who didn't look upon their you know their livelihoods as second rate. So yeah, I find myself in a strange position really because I you know you see those tweets and you know how abhorrent they are and you know the power that they have. But you've got to believe that this guy can change. You've got to believe that anyone can change from mm. from that age in particular. So. The, the, you know, Colo, I was actually going to ask you about this on here about the cultural element of it because you, we, we can pretty much write everyone's, everyone's tweets. From, yeah, I know, right? As in the reaction tweets, yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, no, yeah, I, just backing over that previous point, had someone drafted this as a fictional event a week ago, we could have sat down and probably written the position that everybody will take and we would have been 80% close to the pin, I reckon. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's just, I don't know, it's debilitating mm-hmm. to see how the, the conversation in the broader public debate washes through cricket as well. We sort of hope that it won't, but it, it clearly does. Like we say yesterday, I mean, we, we know exactly what the Prime Minister's doing yesterday. Everybody, know, everybody knows exactly what he was doing yesterday. There's yeah. no ambiguity around it. He's servicing his base. He knows that's what they want to hear. Whether he believes it or not, we've seen over a long period of time, Johnson doesn't necessarily say what he believes and thinks. He says what will serve his purpose best, and that served his purpose best yesterday to amplify what was already said by the Secretary of State. And here we are with it being a genuine big news story, as you say, one of the, the bigger cricketing news stories. Meanwhile, the investigation plays out behind closed doors. Izzy Westbury uh, has been tweeting uh, about mm-hmm. this quite a bit, and, and as usual, the most sensible person in the room. I, I was literally going to mes- mention Izzy as someone who, who's doing the Lord's work on this, yeah. She absolutely is, and, and her point, of course, being that any employer in the UK, uh, when they launch an investigation into misconduct, they suspend that person, right? I mean, it just follows that that would be. They're not, they're not being cancelled. Uh, they're not being, you know, struck out of the, the debate. As Izzy was pointing out yesterday, you know, Ollie Robinson will play in the Ashes this year. There, there is this, unless there are additional material found from more recent years that don't go back to tweets in 2012 and 2013, the ECB are giving themselves a chance to do that legwork. And, like, what other choice do they have? How humiliating would it be for them if they greenlit him to play this week at Edgbaston, said that the apology ended everything and, and so be it, and then on day one of that test match we, we find out something else. I'm not saying that something else will be found out. I hope, like you, Vish, that this is it. But... There's a due diligence element to this now, isn't there? And it's only right that through that process, they, they just take a beat. 
So we, we saw it really with um, the Hales and Stokes incident in that when that came out and when they got prominence, suddenly all these other things came out. There was a video about Stokes. There were these, yeah, yeah. you know, these other things from Alex Hales. And so he's now more relevant than ever. So anyone who wants to make a quick buck over his situation can do that. And let, let's not let's not pretend that there isn't a grift going on the side where people are trying to do exactly this. So removing him from the firing line and being able to have, I suppose, quite a thorough investigation is so important for, on a, for a number of different planes because it can't skew the fact that there is a, a problem to address here that isn't just Robinson's. And he is, you know, he, he's someone who we can put, the, who ha, you know, his face is to it now. But there, there is, over the last year, the fact that they stood for those shirts, Tom Harrison's statement at the end of the day talked of, of this being something that cricket has to grab with both hands, regardless of how much it stings, yeah. I wanted to ask you guys about something, because I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days a bit, particularly with that line of argument from people, as you were saying, that, oh, he was 18, he was young and stupid, he didn't know what he was doing, which, to an extent, is true, in that most 18-year-olds, particularly 18-year-old males, are pretty fucking stupid. Uh, You know, we've all been there and we've all been one. But... It's interesting that I think a decent part of the response to this will be will say we need more education for kids of that age, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is already a lot of education for kids of that age about you know the the fairly basic concept that racism is not good. You know, there's there's kick out racism in football. There are all the things they do in schools. It's not it's not unknown, and it it seems to me that the attraction to this kind of thing, and this is remembering back through my own life as well, is that when you're young there is things that are taboo have a strong appeal. And you can see this obviously with like every little kid who is obsessed with poos and bums and wheeze and thinks it's hilarious when they come up because they know that's rude and they're not supposed to say it. And then as you become a teenager, and this is not exclusively but particularly a teenage male thing, you want to show off and you want to impress people. And one way of showing off is to be more out there, to be more taboo, to be as sexually explicit as you can be, to all of the stuff about your mum, all of the stuff, to to be as shocking as you can, all of the jokes about dead kids and whatever else. There's, There's this, like, intense subculture of that, of showing off. And it seems to me that if you're, if you're someone who doesn't, have to experience discrimination you know particularly if, if, if you're a white male teenager if you're not experiencing discrimination then that probably just seems like another exciting taboo that you, you know you're not supposed to say this you've had this drilled into you for years of high school you're not supposed to say these things and what that does is make those words extremely powerful and it's like leaving a gun lying around or leaving the keys in the ignition or something when it's powerful it's exciting and you want to have a go. Like, some people want to have a turn of that. They want to use it and see what happens. They know it will shock people. And in some circumstances, it will shock people in a way that gives them plaudits and gives them attention. Um, but in other circumstances, it will shock people in a way that, that causes damage to the person saying it. But probably most of the time, it doesn't. Probably most of the time, they get away with it. And so it, it seems to me that it's about a lack of understanding of the actual damage that those things can do, that those words can do, as opposed to just seeing them as potential grenades that you can pull the pin out of, which will make a big exciting bang and make people look at you. And that that is a big part of why, 
teenagers around that sort of late teenage stage particularly want to say those things and yeah and want to use those discriminatory terms because it's exciting because they're not supposed to yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And I think you can tally, you know, their teenage years with, I suppose, obviously with social media because it's coming out there. But, you know, they're they're of the generation to be stung by this, aren't they? Mm. I, I was thinking back to my, I suppose, my own teenage years. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, predominantly white male. I, like, I remember when I was at school, I would use, you know, some pretty horrific homophobic slurs for the reasons that, you know, you've given there that I've... I heard them that it made people laugh and that you kind of you don't really know what you're armed with and while I left some of them at, at school it was probably only about I think it was about 23 24 when I like found out you know the etymology I suppose of some of the words a specific word that I would, I would use a lot and I think that I was quite shocked that I didn't know that earlier mm. and I think that's part of what we talk about education and also you know i i, I did a piece uh, for the independent now like i think a week ago now about why why football fans are booing the knee over here in england mm. essentially it was an interview with tony burnett who is the chief executive of kick it out and i basically sent out a tweet a week before a couple of weeks before the interview and i said anyone who's booed the knee please dm me i'd like to talk to you about it and a few people did and um, you know, when, when I put some questions back to them, I got some some responses. I got a lot of people just not replying. And what, one of the things that, that uh, Tony spoke of was the need for education at school level to hmm. to basically understand on on, on, to, on two fronts really, not just what happened with the British Empire, but also about how much this country's diversity has, has helped it over the last sixty years. I say uh, yeah. maybe sixty, seventy years now. Because otherwise you just, you know, kids are just growing up with a sense of superiority that actually, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily their fault. If they don't see these things in school, if they don't read about them, if they... Mm. Tony, Tony had a great example. His dad was massively into war films. And it was only when, when Tony was 25 that he realised black or Asian people fought in in the world wars he had no idea because he didn't right. see it on you know in the in these films and that ties into what we talk about representation as well but there's all but you know it's yeah. i th i think a lot of you know i don't, I don't want to speak for the three of us in here so I'll, I'll speak just for me i think a lot of things that helped me develop an understanding was the fact that my parents came over as a result of a civil war that was mm -hmm. ultimately you know that match was lit when the empire left Sri Lanka and it created the situation where, you know, it was, it, it was, it was rife for this kind of bloody civil war. My parents came over here and they were lucky enough to eventually get good jobs. And I went to, by growing up in London, I was naturally in quite a diverse area. And even when I went to private school, I had ended up having a lot of diverse, really close friends. And therefore I learned my own way about, all these different rights and wrongs. If you're growing up in an area that isn't particularly diverse, even, even you know, not just culturally, but socially diverse, mm. you're not going to know of, of, of any of these things, really. And you're going to be, you know, we. it's why Oliver Dowden tweeted what he did and, and Boris Johnson backed him up. It's because they know that there are people out there who aren't particularly hot on, on some of these issues who just feel like they're being victimised, when really it's not about... It's basically about protecting the original victims, not trying to throw other people in the line of fire. 
Yeah, that there are people who don't understand what's happening and that you can, because they haven't experienced it, and you can have all the education that you want, but it doesn't make a difference until you develop empathy, until you actually understand why something hurts. You can be told not to do it, but that doesn't mean you understand why it matters not to do it. Exactly, yeah, and and that is the key difference with education because that's not education. That's warning someone. Mm. You know, when they, when people are talking about vetting, it's like no, no, that that's not that's not the don't don't just delete the tweets. You know, mm. just understand why it's wrong and and but also but yeah, just just I don't know, go a bit deeper. I suppose yeah. I mentioned before, Fish, that the Azim Rafiq uh, case is in front of the Employment Tribunal next week. Obviously, last year when Taha Hashim and subsequently others, including George DeBell, wrote about this, that it it blew up at Yorkshire. It was the catalyst for a review by the club. And now it'll be overseen by this tribunal. And it sounds as though, based on reports, that he's going to say everything and he's not going to hold anything back and names will be named in that forum. And maybe it'll go public, maybe it won't. I'm not quite sure where that's at. But this is, whilst not directly linked to the Robertson story, and I'm not saying that it is, uh, but the very fact that a high-profile case and a player of colour in Azim Rafiq and the revelations that, that came out last year, this is only going to gather steam as we work through the next part of the summer. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is, yeah. And it's going to be painful for a lot of people. I think it'll be painful for a lot of people who shared in Azim's res- experiences, you know, not not just at Yorkshire, I suppose, but but people who recognise that story. And the thing I'm worried about is, and we got a snapshot of it yesterday, is it's going to exacerbate this sense of a culture walk because, you know, cricket in England is is already pretty conservative and I think it's been living in a, in a bubble of sorts where it's been able to, you know, um, I suppose keep society at arm's length to a point whereby the things that have come about over the last year haven't directly you know, I suppose, filtered in completely. And I think we saw that a little bit with, I suppose, the front-facing elements. Because I think the ECB do and have generally made made an active effort to try and change themselves. You know, I spoke to an ECB official the end of last summer who, on the record, said, well, frankly, yeah, English cricket is institutionally racist. And it's something that, that needs to change. And, and importantly, something that can change. And I suppose the what the Rafik thing, when it comes out, will will do. I suppose is put a lot of these things out in the open. And I think the important thing to remember in the um, Rafik case is that, and and we saw it a little bit with the the umpires who brought that case to the ECB, John Holder and Ish Dawood, is that mm, mm. they're not going to get anything from this. Like there is no compensation package that will be put together that will make up for for any of the things they experienced, even the stress they've had from putting themselves out in the last year and being as, I don't know, being as brave and, and, and being as, as strong about it, really. But th- this is for justice of sorts, but it's never, it's never you know, justice is, is never really nourishing for the people who, who are seeking it. But it will just ensure that it doesn't happen again. They're not doing this for them, they're doing this for everyone else. Probably doing it for me, really. Like, I'll probably benefit from from this kind of stuff by this by this change of attitude and this heightened awareness of all this and so yeah i'm 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 really keen nervous anxious a little bit scared to see how things play out but i do have faith that at least the ecb will will act accordingly i can't really speak for yorkshire but 
in, in specifically to, to the Rafiq case, um, I've got everything crossed, I suppose, for an appropriate and adequate response from the ECB to this. Because while they might be able to say that, you know, it, it's something that happened you know, behind many sets of closed doors, it still happened under their watch. Yeah, and, and the same applies where you said before that the victims who go out and put themselves out there aren't doing it for necessarily financial gain. I suppose the same applies to you to a, to a certain extent. You didn't get into the, the sports writing caper and, and cricket specifically to, to write about uh, discrimination. Although I'm sure you've taken to it and been an, ex- an excellent advocate in writing people's stories and telling your own story as well, but you're not you know, you don't want this to drag out over a number of months because you want to get back to doing what you love doing. I mean, you want to see the change happen, of course, but it's interesting that, you know, you'll get pigeonholed or others will get pigeonholed as being activist journalists and, and stuff like that, when really uh, this has not been of your choosing. Yeah, yeah. I just want to get back to doing the memes again, to be honest. But um, <laughs> the, um, well, it's funny you say that, uh, you know, that I write about it well and that's very kind of you but I, I suppose I've, I've just had a lot of practice over the last year because you know I, I, would, I would shake your hand now for copious amounts of illiteracy on this subject you know and you know you mentioned Taha before I, I like you know he did this interview with Craig Overton last week he yep. really pushed the Rafiq thing through as did you know James Butler of the Cricket Badger podcast as well yep, yep. And I, 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 I said this to Taha, I might as well say this on here, like, I find people like him very inspiring. You know, I, I'm probably over 10 years older than him, but he's of a generation who, you know, he, he's braver than I am, he is stronger than I am, and he is a lot more confident than I was at his age. And without people like him, really, just in the same way that without people like Ebony and, and Michael Holding using their platforms to do things. Without people like Taha, who is happy to like just come in and, and grab this kind of stuff, it's given me personally a bit of a lift because you you can be pigeonholed a little bit. It, it's funny. Um, so um, I've been speaking to Dean Wilson about this, who did who did a really good um, spe- segment with Izzy on TMS on Sunday, I think. And Andrew Wu, who's a you know, prominent Australian journalist, messaged me when the Ollie Robson stuff was coming up. But it did feel a little bit like. Avengers Assemble. It felt a bit like, right, okay, Cricket Writers of Colour, this is where we come into play. Um, my phone was going off yesterday, and I think it might be because Dean had the day off. Um, the, the CWC acronym is changing its meaning. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, but like, uh, these are the stories that you, I mean, they're not nice to do, but you, but you, you have to do them, and I think we have a responsibility for, for people to do them you know we, as, as much as we all got into this to write about cricket i think very quickly when we got into cricket we realized it's not so much an escape it is about also holding it to account as well really and and both of you have done that superbly and, and, and you continue to do it superbly especially on this platform and you know in your commentary and, and your writing as well so it's, it's, as much, it's as much about you know us as it is about you guys i suppose yeah but it does seem unfair that it that it that it falls to you, you know. It seems it's it, that it's like, oh, okay, we have a race story now. Now, this is your responsibility. Now you have to you have to come in and talk about this. Yeah, yeah. But the um, I suppose I, I was quite nervous like, before I did that sky bit because obviously it was my first time. I sat next to two of my heroes. NASA was my hero growing up, and the thing I I, I spoke to my partner about this, and and she's just an incredible woman anyway. But she. She really kind of assured me that I'd do well. But my, my my one thought was, 
you only you don't really get a chance to speak about this on that kind of platform. And I was really worried about saying the wrong thing, but you know, saying something out of turn because you know, camera. You two are experienced with this, but when a camera goes on you and you ramps things up a bit. And, and the comments on social media afterwards were, were beautiful and I, I really, you know, it really made me feel feel good about um, doing it I'm re- and I'm really glad I did it. But there, there is that sense of like, God, if I don't do this well, then like, mm. they might not do this again. Or even if this is boring, they might not do this again. Mm. And I suppose like the opportunity is um, like something you're always grateful for, but you do feel like sometimes you're, you're kind of... You're playing the ball for someone else. You're, you're almost like, right, we've mm. got four, five, and six in there. I've got, to, I've got to stay in and make a decent chip of this. Otherwise, they're going to be screwed as well. And it really does dispel the myth, doesn't it? That there's no room for politics in cricket, and cricket and politics shouldn't mix, and, and all that garbage that we're told time and time again. The, uh, they never, they never there. have. Famously, they no, never, never have. <laughs> you know, never. Yep. Yeah, but yep. you still hear it, don't you? You, you, you still, you yeah. still hear it. I mean, from the same. The same boring corners uh, and, and the same, we said before, that people ran to their corners when the Robinson thing blew up the other day and they'll continue to do so. But hopefully uh, the work you're doing, Vish, will go some way to uh, offering a, a perspective that will help enlighten those who in the past have been reluctant to see it a different way. Thank you for your work. It's crucial work. It means an awful lot to us that you're happy to come on here and talk with us about it today because we know it's not easy to as you say, be the guy that people call to talk about this thing. But your words are powerful, they're important, and uh, they're appreciated here on The Final Word. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thanks to Fiditioner Antaraja for his time with us on the show. News that came out just before we started recording some additions to the Australian men's white ball squad touring the West Indies and Bangladesh, in theory, over the next couple of months. They've had some players pull out, some of the more senior players, David Warner, Pat Cummins among them, although this hasn't been specified as yet. I I don't think who's actually pulling out, but but a bunch of players have decided they're not going to go and some replacements have been brought in. Yeah, that's right. Trevor Hones sort of made the point that based on what happened overseas and the toll that it took in the the bio bubbles and the hard lockdown back in Australia when they returned, that, that some of the senior players who are originally in the squad of 23 won't be playing when they go to the Caribbean. They're meant to leave later in June so they've, they've put these replacement players in there for the time being and if they get the green light to go to the Caribbean and subsequently to Bangladesh then they'll presumably make that a smaller squad before they actually fly out so yeah but I mean Jeff the great news here and is that a, a, a player we've been pushing for a long time to get another opportunity for Australia we didn't really think it would happen though did we Dan Christian he's won everything you can win in domestic cricket on the T20 circuit and we were litigating the case earlier in the year that who better to bring into the T20 squad in a World Cup year mm-hmm. but didn't really believe it would happen and here we are Dan Christian first name on the media release Daniel Christian Ben McDermott Cam Green, Ashton Turner, Wes Agar and Nathan Ellis are the ones coming in. But Dan Christian, at the age of 38, having last played a T20 International in 2017 and last played a one-day International in 2014, is in the extended squad. Now, that feels like great news off the top. What feels like less great news is that it means he has to come back from England, where he's playing with knots, quarantined for two weeks in Australia in order to be part of the training camp and potentially not even make the smaller squad that then actually goes on the trip. And if he does that, 
if he does make that smaller squad, he'll then have to quarantine for two weeks in the Caribbean before being able to play. It seems a pretty roundabout way of getting a player to St Lucia from England, which is about a seven-hour flight away, to make them fly back to Australia first and then go through hotel quarantine yeah. before heading back out again. Yeah, that, that's the bit that stands out to me. So I'm going to take it as read that if they've been named as replacement players, they're going to be in that squad. Certainly Christian and Ben McDermott, who do have to come back from the UK, they haven't even started in the Blast yet. The Blast starts this week. McDermott's playing at Derbyshire and Christian, of course, at Nottinghamshire. Last year, Dan Christian had to go through five countries to get back to Australia to quarantine after winning mm. the Blast, uh, as he always does. Winning the Blast last year, he's won every competition, I think. But no, so yeah, you'd hope that if they've made the decision to pull them out of their existing commitments, that they're going to get that chance to to go with Australia, provided the tour goes ahead. But mm. you're right, though. How brutal is that? that? Between getting... I think the direct flight was to St Lucia, which is a BA flight, I've caught it before, is 10 hours from Heathrow. This will be, you know, back from the UK to Australia, 24 or so hours, two mm. weeks in hotel quarantine, then back to the Caribbean, which is... I suppose more About than 24 hours. hours. Yeah, it takes a long time to get there when yep. you've got to go via the States normally. Maybe they have a charter flight, but no, nevertheless, it'll be, mm. it'll be tough going. And then more quarantine at the other end in St. Lucia. So it seems an arse about way of doing it. I have no idea why they're making them do this, but I suppose that there must be some underlying logic and hopefully that'll be interrogated in the coming days. Well, my assumption would be that there's preparation being done in Australia in the form of training camps and so on. How much training does Dan Christian need to do to play t- T20 cricket? I'm pretty sure the guy's played enough T20 cricket before <laughs> that he knows how it's done and you pretty much just have to tell him what you want him to do. There is not, there is nothing that can be achieved in a couple of weeks in Queensland that's going to change the way that he plays the game at the age that he's at. It seems absolutely insane to me, particularly to be specifying in the press release that they're concerned about the mental health of players after extended periods. The quote is, extended periods in biosecure cubs and hard quarantine have had an impact on the health and well-being of some players and their families. And so in order to offset that, we're going to make another guy go through four weeks of quarantine in order to do a week or whatever it is of training in Queensland. It's absolutely mad when he could just be going from the UK and meeting the squad there. Yeah, and he could go from the UK with some cricket under his belt as well. Having been playing, yeah. Yeah, and playing that form of the game. And I don't think the quarantine is as bad if you're coming in from the UK. I might be misremembering that. But the point being is that, yes, it makes no sense for what would be a training camp for a 38-year-old. Hopefully they can work a way through that because it just doesn't feel right to me. Nor Ben McDermott. Hopefully they're in the bloody squad. I'm sure they will be. Mm. I'm taking it as red, but they'd want to be. We'll be after them. So that was the uh, the news coming out today. But I suppose they, they'll go from the West Indies. Uh, they leave in late June, so they'll be able to get out of quarantine mid-July. They start playing the games in the second half of July and then over to Bangladesh. I still don't think the Bangladesh part will happen because... There'll be a number of these Australian players, maybe not quite as many uh, as would have been the case because a few of them are now staying yeah. home, but a, a quite a few senior players who've got 100 deals. And I just can't imagine a scenario where the ECB doesn't prevail upon CA and say, look, we really need this to work. We need as many of our international players here as mm-hmm. possible. Please find a way of getting out of this Bangladesh tour and get them over here. I mean, the big three look after mm-hmm. each other. Surely that'd be a conversation that may not be held publicly and may not be the sort of conversation mm-hmm. we're ever privy to in a media release or yep. anything like that, but at least subtly. But would I mean, wouldn't you think that some of the players who are likely to be missing, who are skipping this tour, as in Warner, 
Cummins, maybe well, we Smith is. Yeah, we don't know. Maybe Maxwell's we, we, maybe Maxwell. We don't know. This is the point. Yeah, we don't. We, we, but, there's been no information. No, but a lot of the players who were in the IPL are the ones who are going to be theoretically featuring in the hundred. You would think that they'd be the ones who'd be fairly likely to skip the West Indies tour, stay in Australia, which means they can go straight into the UK with no quarantine, basically, or with minimal quarantine. Minimal, yeah, and then end up playing in the hundred, and that could be a sort of elegant enough way that CA can make sure that its 100 players are in the 100 but still have a squad in Bangladesh playing at the same time. Yeah, bit of a watch this space on that one, I reckon. Yep. So that's where we're going with that. Uh, before we reach the halfway break, actually, it's much more than halfway. We're, we're a fair way <laughs> of the way through the show already. But it is time to play a little game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. You heard it right and you heard it here first. It's a game that we play with people on our patron page uh, because it takes us several days a week to make this show and the other show we need support, and people support us by sending in contributions. And instead of sending in normal amounts of money, they send in very specific amounts that relate to cricket in some way. This Nerd Pledge number comes in from Dominic da Souza Correa, who is a passionate New Zealand fan. I know this because I've had some conversation with Dominic on Twitter, and there is no New Zealand supporter more fired up than Dominic da Souza Correa. $5.12 was the amount that Dominic sent in. So 512, which could be read as any sort of variation of those numbers. He also sent in a clue, which you don't have to do, but he did. One of the most stunning moments in the history of New Zealand versus Australia one-day international contests. 512, what do you make of it, Adam? Yeah, I got so close on this, and I want to I tell Dominic just how close I got with my first thought, which was uh, the Hamilton chase in 2007 to win the Chapel Hadley mm-hmm. Trophy. So Australia make 347, and New Zealand get there. Oh, I what think a from series. The final ball, wasn't it? Yeah, the last ball of the series, they, they win that game. It, it was, was that the series when Mike Hussey was captaining and, and New Zealand kept chasing 300 plus? Um, yeah, what, what I remember it for, it's the series where Brendan McCullum exploded. So, Jeff, remember when McCullum played his final one day? International, you and I were there for that in 2016. It must have been at Hamilton again, and we did that video for Crick Info where we uh, we went through um, McCullum's career and his career over cricket. It was a lovely thing to do. Jeremy Coney calling him a a hairy little velocipede whirring up and down the pitch. (laughs) (laughs) That's good stuff. Yeah, whirring little legs, wasn't it, or something like that? (laughs) But yeah, having um, having done that, I, I immediately twigged and thought 2007. And then I looked it up and I immediately thought, ah, Craig McMillan hits five sixes Mm -hmm. in his 117, which proved match winning from 89 deliveries in that chase. And I thought, ah, here it'll be. It'll be five sixes and 12 fours. Not quite. Five sixes and Mm. 13 fours. So missed it by that much. Oof, that's close. That's close. It's maybe closer than what I came up with because, as I sometimes do on on this show, I just accuse our nerd pledges of making typos because I was like, what if... Instead of five one two, it was meant to be five two one, because <laughs> if if it were meant to be five two one, that would be what Shane Bond was on when he took his fifth wicket in Port Elizabeth in the World Cup match in two thousand and three, playing against Australia, where Shane Bond ended up taking six for a very famous six wicket haul. At the time, he got the five for he'd taken five for twenty one. So and it, and it was a crazy spell of bowling. Got. A lot of big bounce off that weird pitch in in Port Elizabeth. Got Hayden edging for one. 
Gilchrist smashed 18 in quick time and then was smashed on the pad, fast-swinging Yorker. Then there's too much bounce and Ponting edges it to slip for six. So uh, Shane Bond's got three for 15, has a rest, comes back, gets Damian Martin edging behind with the same ball, and then the next ball he hits Brad Hogg on the toe and he's five for 21. And then uh, a little bit later, booms through Neil uh, through uh, Neil Harvey. Neil Harvey wasn't playing. <laughs> Ian Harvey. <laughs> um, in the next over, clean bowls him, ends up with six for 23. But he's bowled all these overs, and so then uh, Andy Bickle and Michael Bevan put on uh, nearly 100 runs, get Australia to 208, and they bowl out New Zealand short of that. But that was one of Bond's big moments with the ball. So then I was thinking, well, if it's not that, could it be related to the the six for that uh, Trent Bolt took during the 2015 World Cup? The spell that Trent Bolt had where he took five wickets, he took five wickets for one run in those two overs um, when he took all the wickets. And that one run was a wide. So he didn't concede a a run off the bat while he was taking five wickets through the middle of the Australian innings. So it's not that. 5-1-2. Australia did lose five for 10 and they did lose six for 11, but they did not lose five for 12 at any point during that sequence. So that was the best that I could come up with, Dominic. Not quite there yet, but we can have another look at it before story time on the weekend where we do Nerd Pledge in more depth. Yeah, I think the good thing is that there is such a rich history between Australia and New Zealand in 50-over cricket. It could be anything. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting a steer from Dominic and, and telling the story in full on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So if you want to send us a Nerd Pledge, go to patreon.com slash oh, yes. the final word and you can help us keep making the show. And it's been a wild ride uh, since we last recorded, Jeff, because we were talking about, as we have been, reaching James Anderson's 6.14 test wickets. And we did 6.16 get, now. We, yeah, we did get him. We, we got to 6.14. I think we got to 6.15. Then we hit the we first got to of 620. June. 6.20. 6.20, sorry. First of mm. June, a number of credit cards expire, which means that we have to, you know, we went to about 600 again. And since then, we've piled on 13 more. So we're back to 6.13. We're now three behind mm-hmm. Anderson. I assume he will break Alistair Cook's cap record in test cricket for England this week with his 162nd test match. I don't expect they'll rest him. So that means that he will almost certainly take more wickets. He's six away from 1,000 in first-class cricket. Maybe that can be a goal we can set in the future. But for now, Mm -hmm. we just want to pull level with him. So if you can get in Mm -hmm. when you hear this, if you want to pledge and help us get over the top of Jimmy before he starts bowling on Thursday, that would be delightful. It would. Let's take a quick break and then on with the rest of the show. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Jeff, many times, so many times I've come on in this spot when talking about Zolio to mm-hmm. note that the biggest problem in my life, my biggest impediment is I can't get a signal at King's Cross Station. <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, it's not so much about climbing mountains. It's not so much about being Mm -hmm. on a life raft. It's about getting Mm -hmm. up the escalators and not being able Mm -hmm. to communicate with the outside world. Not Mm -hmm. always a problem, but sometimes a frustrating part of my life. When do you Mm -hmm. get the next connecting bus or whatever it is? Well, it happened to me on Sunday. I was heading to Lords for the first time in seven years as a spectator. And I was meeting someone at the gate with a ticket, you know, these sorts of things. And I needed to get an Uber to the ground. But of course, no reception. And thus, I couldn't send a text or get an Uber without walking all the way down the street uh, to make that connection. If I had my Zolio, if I had the foresight to bring the Zolio with me, had I mm-hmm. put the pieces together that the tube wasn't running between King's Cross and Baker Street, which was the connection I needed at the time, this could have all been avoided. If I had the, yep. had I had the satellite technology in my top pocket, connected to mm-hmm. my belt, as was the custom mm-hmm. for a time, mm-hmm. in my back pocket... 
You've got it in your hand right now. It's not big, but it does a lot of heavy lifting. I've heard that before. Um, look, the thing is that when you need to send a text message to someone who's waiting with the ticket at the gate and you're not there, Zolio, this is the thing that lets you do it when you've got no reception. It turns your smartphone into a satellite phone. Nothing else can do that. You have to buy a satellite phone. They're quite expensive and they're not necessarily for the you know the everyday user they're more for the getting rescued in a canyon somewhere in, in the middle of a mountain range which the Zolio can also help you with by the way but it's super simple you put an app on your phone you turn the Zolio box on it's it fits in the palm of my hand look at that you can see that on the video it's it's light it's neat you turn it on and it then makes your phone connect to satellites many kilometres into space, hundreds of kilometres into space. And it bounces your message off the satellites down to the phone of whoever you want to contact or the email address, you can send it to an email address as well. So you can send any written communication to any phone number or any email address in the world from anywhere in the world. It's that simple. It's that good. You can be on a raft, you can be up a mountain, you can be at King's Cross St Pancras and you will be able to communicate with whoever you want to communicate with. That is the power of Zolio, Z-O-L-E-O. Dot com. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. A little update from our marathon running friend, Declan Lawler, who's doing more than running marathons. He's running giant marathons, multiple marathons upon marathons, running the entire length of the Thames River in the space of four days to raise money for the Lord's Taverners. He'll need a bloody Zolio. He will. He'll need a Zolio. Who knows where he's going to end up? Who knows where he's going to end up? He'll be needing to send messages when his legs fall off. Uh, He says, five weeks to go now. And in order to achieve my weekly mileage target while holding down a full-time job, I've resorted to running twice a day, usually once in the morning and once at lunch. This is bananas, Declan. You can't do that. It leaves you exhausted by the evening. Getting a lot of sleep, apparently, in the evening uh, and noting the increase in temperatures as England heads into summer. But uh, Declan says he's excited to report the fundraiser is now at £999.71. Uh, someone push him over the four figures, Mark, please. Uh, he'd like to thank all the Final Word listeners for their donations so far. And he says, at times, like at 6.30am when my alarm goes off and I have to drag my carcass out of bed, my motivation does falter. But knowing that my efforts are going to help people gives me the extra boost I need to keep going. Get on it, Decla. Keep those legs working. So we'll put all of that in the show notes as well to let you know how you can donate to Declan's cause, which we've been talking a lot about on Storytime. But yes, if you're not a Storytime listener, you won't know uh, the work that Declan's been doing alongside the Lord's Taverners, which is just fantastic. It is. Uh, We've got news out of England, Adam. The uh, England Women's Central Contracts List has come out ahead of the Women's Test Match coming up next week, um, which you're going to be at and watching. 17 contracts coming in and uh, most notable for Sophia Dunkley getting her first central contract. Yeah, so this is really important because it's the first year when the central contracts have been aligned with the domestic contracts. So the we'll talk a bit about the Rachel Hoho Flint Trophy, but the new regional structure means that there is a bit of a safety net if you lose your contract. So there was the well-documented example of Tash Farrant a couple of years ago who fell off the central contract list, but 
kind of was in limbo land for a while there. Well, one player has been uh, left off, Kirsty Gordon, the, the spinner from Scotland, who played so well in the uh, World T20 back in 2018, but has been kind of squeezed for opportunities with, I suppose, Sophie Eccleston principally doing that role. And the emergence, I suppose, of Sarah Glenn, the leg spinner, and Maddie Villiers, the off spinner from Essex, it means that someone like mm. Kirsty drops off. But now she drops off into the regional structure and she'll remain a professional cricketer. So uh, these particular round of contracts run from the 1st of May through until the 31st of October next year, 2022, so that they're all aligned into the future. And yeah, there won't be people, mm-hmm. there won't be players who are trying to make their way in the game who, you know, it's quite common for a, for a men's player to fall off the contract list, but you don't want a situation mm. where they then fall away from the game. So uh, yeah, it's, mm. a, it's a positive in terms of the reforms that have been made in the last couple of years. Yep. The general sort of senior players you'd expect to see there in Beaumont, Brunt, Heather Knight, Amy Jones, Siva, Shrub Soul, Fran Wilson, Lauren Winfield, Danny White. I guess I was a little surprised to see Georgia L was still on that list. She, she just, uh, I don't mean this to sound dismissive, but she seems like a player from a previous era more than one who's got that much to offer in the current era, but maybe she's remaking herself. Yeah, I think that it probably has a bit to do with uh, with generation change and not wanting to do it too quickly. You're right, a lot of very familiar names on that list. Kate Cross as well has been around for a long time, but at the same time, there's Freya Davis, who's in her second year as a contracted player, I think, but coming through, getting a couple of opportunities uh, for England. We already mentioned Sophie Eccleston, who's the number one bowler in the world. Sarah Glenn, the leg spinner, has had a fantastic year, also making runs for the Central Sparks uh, in the Hey Ho Flint Trophy. Um, Katie George, great story, perhaps the quickest of the lot. Um, she's had a lot of injuries, but now gets a chance to play for England again. Looking forward to watching her play. And then Maddie Villiers, the off spinner, who mm. debuted against Australia back in 2019, but looks ready to take the next step. So it's a well-balanced squad. The fact that there are all of these central contracts, 17 of them in total, you add that to the 41 domestic contracts, that means 58 players mm. are being paid to play cricket in England, 58 women I should say, are being paid to play cricket for England uh, this year, which when you consider it used to be 14 central contracts I mean the numbers speak for themselves and it's only going to make the women's game at an international and a domestic level uh, get better and better year on year. And the other aspect with Sophia Dunkley being that uh, England haven't had a black woman playing cricket for them since Ebony Rainford Brent retired. Um, Sophia Dunkley's coming into that contracted list now and and a chance to make some headway. Yeah, a very capable uh, hitter and a good leg spinner option as well. Certainly in in short forms when they need to have a number of bowling options, she's one of those. But yeah, she made her debut in the Caribbean in 2018 Mm -hmm. as well at that World T20 competition. Didn't get much of an opportunity and hasn't really played too often for England since, but that's a sign of faith in, in a young player that she's got plenty to offer. So you talked about the Hey Ho, Let's Go, uh, Rachel Hey Ho Flint trophy that's uh, been played at the moment. This is the 50-over domestic women's trophy going on at present. And our uh, statistician friend Hypercost from the internet, he lives on the internet, Hypercost, has been keeping a lot of numbers basically saying that it's much, much better for batting this year. Uh, they've been smashing a lot more runs. So it, in the first 12 games of the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy this year, compared to previous versions of this tournament or of other 50-over tournaments over the previous five years or so, which have all involved 25 to 30 games, even in the first 12 games so far this year, there have been more centuries scored, more sixes hit, 
more innings scores of over 250. Uh, the two biggest run chasers in List A women's cricket in England mm. as well, and a higher run rate across the board of nearly five per over than any of the previous editions of, of a 50-over competition. Uh, it's The professionalisation revolution is still making its impact felt in very noticeable ways. Yeah, those two monster chases on the opening day of the competition a couple of Saturdays ago, which gave it great coverage and you know a number of centuries being made at better than a run of ball. And as Hypercourse goes on to explain, I mean, what we're seeing with the with with the stats on this comp is they're far more in line with the WNCL, which has been in operation for a long time, but been professionalised in the last five years. And it all tallies, doesn't it, that we're now seeing mm. an uptick in all of the areas of the game that you'd expect. We saw that with the Kia Super League from season one to season two to season three. Mm -hmm. Far more sixes, for example. The run rate went up. And the same with the WBBL, Jeff. You did massively. You crunched those numbers, yeah. didn't you, a couple of years ago where we went from WBBL one. I mean, I'm, I'm plucking a number out of the sky here, but about 110 was the average score. That doesn't mm. win you games anymore. And we're seeing a similar pattern wash through uh, 50 over women's cricket in England now. Yeah, um, that's... Exactly the case. So Amy Jones on top of the runs list thus far, nearly 300 runs in three hits. Not yes. not bad going. We, we've we never really seen the best of Amy Jones in Australia, I think, in the in the WBBL or when she's been out there playing for England. Um, Catherine Brunt still leading all comers on the wickets tally with nine thus far, as does Tash Farrant, who's, who's back amongst it, who you just mentioned before. Yeah, Emma Lamb, good story from the Thunder. She made a century on the same day as her brother for Lancashire earlier in the season. Mm. And this this was in county cricket, so both playing for Lancs. Two weeks ago, so during the Roses game, uh, Danny made a half century batting at number eight and Emma made a century on the first day of the season mm. for the Thunder. So she's going quite well too. Likewise, players like Danny White, Tammy Beaumont, uh, you know, Lauren Winfield-Hill, players you'd expect to dominate at domestic level have all mm -hmm. been doing so, so far in the season. One other stat for you, there have been nearly a million live stream views for the 12 games so far. Um, that's compared to 500,000 in the 24 games that were played last year. Mm. So, you know, yes, that's a function partly of people becoming more conditioned to watching streams through the county championship but it also speaks to the fact that people want to watch this cricket and look it's it started so well uh, it's a really encouraging season mm -hmm. and now we go into the internationals you know uh, India are playing their test match here against England next week it starts on Wednesday I think I should know because I'm commentating it Wednesday or Thursday one or the other down at Bristol but yeah the fact that India want to play more test cricket I heard Nick Hockley talking to Pete Lawler and Gideon Haig on the it's cricket etc podcast and, and it just kind of I mean they asked him the direct question about should there be two and three day domestic women's cricket in Australia to complement the WNCL and whilst he gave the company line about T20 being the future of women's cricket and where most investment should go he balanced that by saying it's a really positive thing that multi-format series are being played with test cricket mm -hmm. so I think that we're getting closer to a consensus that we want to see not only more test cricket, mm. but a pathway that countries around the world mm -hmm. will have a, a sophisticated enough domestic system that it can account for two or three day cricket at the level down as well. And, and even if they don't at this point, like there's there's no harm done in playing a few more test matches, you know, in making each bilateral series rather than having seven ODIs and five T20s or whatever yes. it is. Um, you know, putting a test match in there isn't going to kill anybody. Uh, the other thing to look at was the win by the Netherlands over Ireland. Uh, now, this just 
wasn't just about winning the match that they won, but they actually won an ODI series against Ireland 2-1. So it was a thriller in the first game where the uh, Netherlands made 195 only, but managed to defend it by one run. They just held off the Irish at the end. They got smashed in the second game by eight wickets, but they came back to win the decider by four wickets in the run chase themselves. So uh, remarkable in the context of... The points that they're getting for the the one-day Super League that's going on at the moment and also that last time they played an ODI series against Zimbabwe, they beat them too. So this is the Netherlands beating two test nations, you know, two two of the supposedly bigger dogs or bigger than them, certainly um, in the dog rankings of (laughs) world cricket. You've got to love the form line, don't you? Ireland beat England uh, last mm. year at Southampton and the Netherlands have beat Ireland. So it does reinforce that point that this is a good thing, uh, the 13 teams playing uh, in this World Cup Super League. Yes, it's all over the place due to COVID. So you look at the table and Bangladesh and England and, and Ireland have played three series of three games compared to South Africa. Zimbabwe have only played one. Uh, the Netherlands, likewise. New Zealand have only played one too. But the top eight there go straight through to the World Cup. But the next four aren't out of it they'll go into this qualifier which will be super exciting as well so only one team is effectively bundled out at this stage currently that's Sri Lanka on the bottom of the table having played six games so they'll need to get a wriggle on but yeah looking forward to seeing this become more and more a part of the, the conversation we have around 50 over cricket mm. in the couple of years between now and the 2023 World Cup well, Netherlands at nine on the rankings will be pretty heartening for them, even if they're just outside the automatic qualifications spot. It's it's uh, it's quite good reading. Netherlands nine, India eight. Very very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 how much you know if Netherlands keep going up the list, how much they'll they'll have to keep shrinking the table um, in order to to cut them out when they show the rankings for world cricket. But uh, I suppose the top eight is a reasonable thing to look at given the automatic qualification. I think we're just about the end of the show, are we? Anything else to cover? Feels good to me. I think we've done plenty. Uh, we should, uh, yeah, put a pin in it and uh, and come back for the weekend show. And uh, we'll, we'll be recording the weekend show tomorrow mm-hmm. as it happens, so we won't have much time to reloop on the nerd pledge mm. stuff. But if you haven't been listening to story time, the stories are probably getting longer <laughs> and more elaborate and more detailed, mm-hmm. uh, which means a lot more work for us uh, through the week. But yes, it, it's uh, it's turning into uh, a show that's just as popular as the weekly show. I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's certainly a thing. (laughs) This is the final word. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We will have story time on the weekend. We'll be back with the daily show for the next England-New Zealand test match Ah, as well. That goes up on the podcast feed usually a couple of hours after the end of play where we'll sort of wrap up the day in about 15 minutes and uh, run you through some of the more interesting and amusing things that happened during that day as well. If you don't have time to watch eight hours of test cricket a day, we'll be doing that for the World Test Championship Final 2 and onward through the summer with India and England in those test matches. The Final Word podcast is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network, lots of other shows that they have if you want to check them out. It's edited by Dave Collins, No Relation. And it is supported by Woodstock Cricket. Uh, You can get a nice, sweet discount on cricket equipment by using the code that's in the show notes. Get on there. And if you want to communicate with people around the world, zolio.com. 
Go and get yourself some satellite hookups. Uh, and that's it for the show today. We'll see you next time we record. Or we'll, we won't see you because it's a podcast. It's not a visual medium in the first place. And even if it is, it's one way. So even if it were visual, you wouldn't see us. You could see us with the video, which is on YouTube. So it is a visual medium, but we still can't see you. But we'll be with you again. Bye. I had to go about-